Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Episode 105 features Dr. John Demartini. Dr. John is active on lots of different places. I'll link to his website, his YouTube channel, his Instagram. He has a bunch of books as well. I'll link to anywhere that you can connect with Dr. John in the show notes. And by the Mike's Search for Meaning standards, this is actually a pretty short podcast. This one checked out at a little over an hour, but Dr. John does not waste any time packing the punch with insight. We talk a lot about his unique lens on values. This is what I took most from this conversation. A lot of people like myself in the coaching space, we use values exercises to help people get in touch with what they morally are most aligned with. For me, connection and compassion, let's say, are are two really big ones in my life. And what Dr. John advises and gives a really good teaser of in this podcast is not to focus on morality so much as how do you actually spend your time? If you look at your past, say, three months, six months, a year, or even just the last day, How would you ideally spend your time? What do you do during your free time? And he tells really powerful stories during this podcast about how he's helped people who otherwise might be labeled as lazy or lost really connect to what's most important in their life and start living into their purpose. That's what Dr. John does really well, helps people connect to their purpose. The reason I invited Dr. John onto the show is because I think that he exemplifies what's possible for humanity and what's possible in your own life. Dr. John, as a young child, couldn't read and in so many words was told that he wasn't going to amount to much. And he's living life more on his terms than almost anyone that I've ever encountered in my whole life. So I think potential is unlimited for humanity. And Dr. John has studied this for probably 50 years now at this point. So if you're interested in what's possible for your own life and what's possible for humanity, then this conversation is definitely for you. I'll let Dr. John take it from here. And with all of this said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. John Demartini. All right, Dr. John, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, I know that you do so many of these appearances, and it's very humbling to be able to have you on my show. So I I really appreciate you taking the time. And I experience you as someone who, despite making all the appearances and and having a certain amount of clout and recognition, that you you show up with humility to this work, and, and you treat every single appearance with a level of dedication. And I just I wanted to share that appreciation with you. That make that makes my life as the host really easy. And I know that you're gonna serve my audience in in really powerful ways today. So thank you. Thank you. You know, I I did live seminars and I still do a lot of live seminars, but uh, sometimes there's 
small groups, sometimes large groups, sometimes there's tens of thousands, there's some, it all is different sizes. And, you know, if it's a small group, I'm here to, to serve just as much of the big group. So it doesn't, I, I didn't, you know, some people say, well, don't do these programs, do these. And I go, I, I'm grateful for anybody that's willing to listen. <laughs> Me too. I share that with you. So in all your appearances, I don't think I've ever heard anyone ask the following question, which is how I start almost every one of my interviews. And I would love to know, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? At my family's home, my, my parents' home? Yeah. Well, my father was playful. And so I remember when I was two years old, my mom made a spaghetti. You know, my dad was Italian, so we had spaghetti sometimes. And she served a spaghetti and was still cooking in the kitchen. And we quickly scarfed it up and licked our plates and then pretended like and tried to convince her that we hadn't received any yet. <laughs> so we had, <laughs> we had a sense of humor. My dad had a sense of humor. And I, I guess he was a little bit of a trickster on my mom. And so she, he said, let's just keep a straight face and sh sh pretend like we haven't had any and convince her with, with absolute convincing that we haven't received any yet, but it was our second serving. <laughs> so we had a playful family. I love that. We had, uh, you know, a loving family. I, I can't really, my sister has a slightly different view, but that's what I recall. And I, I'm very grateful for my mom and dad and my sis. So we, we, our daily routine was we'd have dinner at around six, six thirty at night. We could play up until then. We could go and play afterwards. We had to make sure we ate all our food that we were asked to eat, mm -hmm. vegetables. <laughs> and, you know, we would, when, in 1956, my dad got his first car, and we used to, after dinner, go out into the car and listen to a radio. And we'd try to talk our dad into going around the neighborhood because not everybody had a car. And so getting to drive around a car with a radio on with the windows down was like, cool so you know, <laughs> that was the era so and we go for walks as a family and we'd have uh, around the dinner table we would discuss all kind of things and we would some in those days you'd get a pattern at six six o'clock in the morning and the tv would come on there's only three stations and that was the news and it was more reliable news than today and um mm -hmm. so we had a typical 1950s I was born in 54, so typical 50s family. Mm. And how would you describe yourself as a child? And, and if you could speak to the, the challenges that you had with learning, because at, by the end of this conversation, no one is going to think that you had uh, a challenge with learning. So I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about that. Well, when I was born, I had apparently some sort of awkward positioning in the womb, and my arm was turned in and my leg was turned in. And we really didn't get to grasp the significance of that until I tried to stand up. <laughs> that wasn't doing so well. I also, so at about age one, a little over one, I started having to wear braces. One and a half, I had to wear braces till I was four on my leg and arm. And I also remember going to a speech pathologist and using strings and buttons in my mouth. And I had to do all these little exercises. And my mom would make me do all these exercises. And I'd visit this a doctor's office when I was a kid because I wasn't using my mouth properly and pronouncing things, making the noise properly, phonemes, if you will. So I had a learning problem 
And I really didn't know the significance of that learning problem until I was around five to six. And then when I got to first grade, when everybody was learning how to read and stuff, that didn't work for me. And I ended up in the normal reading and then the remedial reading. And then I had to wear a dunce cap with Daryl Dalrymple. I always wondered what happened to him. And uh, we used to face the window until we decided to read and none of that worked. So my first grade teacher asked my parents to come to school. And I remember sitting in this little reading circle, semicircle, and with my parents to the side of me. And she said, well, I'm afraid your son has got learning difficulties and disabilities. And I don't think he's ever going to be able to read or write properly because I wrote backwards with my hand like this. Read properly, write properly, mm. communicate, speak properly. Probably won't go very far amount to much because of that. But when I got out of my braces at four, I wanted to run. He said, but he likes to run. So maybe he can do well in sports. <laughs> maybe push him into sports because he might be able to do okay there, which I did. I got into baseball and eventually surfing. But yeah, mm -hmm. I had learning problems as a child. I don't think I was unintelligent, but it wasn't street it, it was street intelligence. I was pretty good that way. But speaking, writing, reading, and academics was not working. I didn't really read my first book mm -hmm. until I was 18. Mm. That was after a lot of And work. you've now read... Yes, uh, I I imagine, well, and and so you didn't read your first book till you were eighteen, and you've read thirty thousand eight hundred now. Thirty thousand eight hundred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I used to read by the time I that's when I absolutely eighteen. I started to devour books, and I started reading, you know, at least eighteen to twenty hours a day, and I got faster and faster and faster, and I was reading, you know, four to seven books a day on average, and weekends sometimes eighteen, nineteen books. And so I started devouring freaking books. I mean, I just, you know, when mm. you're told you couldn't read and then mm. all of a sudden you can, it's like a heyday. And I still read every single day. Yeah. So I, and I mm -hmm. keep records. <laughs> so I, I'm a, when I get to mm. knock out another book, it's a dream of mine to be able to do that. So, yeah, I still read and I, I write every day and try to speak every day and I travel most every day. So this is typically a back-end question that I ask, but since you've read 30,800 of them and it's already been mentioned with books, if, if you had to recommend for someone who's interested in mastering their life and you had to recommend three books, what three books would you recommend of your 30,800? Well, I get asked that question sometimes and I tell people Syntopican Volumes 1 and 2 by Mortimer Adler. Syntopicon mm -hmm. volumes one and two. Are you familiar with those two? I, as I've heard you mention them in other podcast appearances, but yes. I'm not, it, I wasn't familiar with them. S Y N T O P I C O N volumes one and two by Mortimer Adler. Those two books, I believe are two really, really meaningful life empowering books. Because what it does is it takes the greatest ideas from some of the greatest minds in the Western world and summarizes their summary of those ideas. And, I, and these are the most important principles and ideas that people, I think, can build a foundation of knowledge on. So I tell people that. And, I mean, I've devoured all the philosophers of Western world and some of the Eastern world and Japan and China and all those places. But 
that those two books are still my favorite. And I still, I've read those things three times. And, and I normally don't read a book, mm. you know, multiple times, but those, those I've read over because I, I love the way they were put together. And they basically are covering, mm-hmm. you know, very important questions that are pertinent to human life. Beautiful. So I think this this next question will be an on ramp. They're about eight or nine hundred pages. So, each. Sorry, so that's three volumes. <laughs> there you go. That counts for three. <laughs> so what I was going to say is this this next question I think can be a beautiful on ramp into the, there's so many different explorations of what it means to be alive that you have meaningful contributions to, and so. I think this question can serve us into at least several different pathways that this conversation might go. And if someone were to come up to you at a dinner party and ask, what do you do? And, and they had time to listen, you know, you can take as long as you want to explain what you do or who you are. How would you respond? Well, I'm an educator. I'm an inspired educator who loves to assist people in maximizing their human awareness and potential so they can do something extraordinary with their life. And I mm-hmm. teach, research, write, and travel. I'm pretty well useless outside those things. <laughs> I'm, I'm a klutz outside that. I'm, I'm pretty good in those areas, but outside that, I'm a klutz. I haven't driven a car in 32 uh-huh. years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I learned many, many years ago at age 27, if you want to live an inspired life, prioritize your life, stick to the top priorities, delegate the rest. And so I delegate everything mm-hmm. except teach, research, write, and travel, which are the four things I spontaneously love doing I can't wait to do every morning. So that's mm-hmm. it. I'm, I'm a decent teacher. I, I write a lot. I'm finishing up a new 1,000-page textbook on the brain this week. and. I got another book coming out on economics. So I, I'm constantly researching and writing and learning, trying to feed my mind. And hopefully, because I feel it's my responsibility as an educator to expand my education, expand my knowledge as much as I possibly can for the sake of the people I'm sharing. And I travel. I, I full-time mm-hmm. travel. I've been to 194 countries speaking, so I, I travel extensively. So let's get into the brain. One of the ways to maximize potential, right? If that's what your teaching and education is on, it's it's maximizing potential. One of the surefire ways to do that, especially in Western world, is to master your mindset and, and master your brain. So I I know that you're very eloquent about explaining the mechanics of how the brain works. And so if someone's baseline is coming to you and is like, I'm I'm hungry, I'm stuck. I'm so stuck in my life. I've been, you know, I, my relationships feel a little bit flat. I, I'm not in the career I want to be living in. All this stuff that you're talking about with, man, like delegating all the stuff that I don't do well in my life. That sounds amazing, but it feels so far from me. You're really good at distilling the, the master level into something that's practical and, and basic for, for anyone who's tuned in. So where, where would you start to educate people about how they can maximize potential in terms of understanding their brain and how the mind works? Well, the first thing I would do about 45 plus years ago, <clears throat> I learned about the significance of human values. And every human being, regardless of gender, age, lives by a set of priorities, a set of values. And 
you know, at one time it was thought that we need to determine what's the best values for the society. And I think that's BS. There is no such thing. A universal value system has never been found. But each individual has filtered their life uniquely and has a vantage point that's unique and the visual perspective that's unique and has their own voids and values that make up their value system. And the first thing that I think it's wise to do is to determine what those are for each individual. So if anybody came up to me and said, look, I'm, my life's not fulfilled, it's where would I start? I would start there. And I put on my website a value mm-hmm. determination process that's complimentary, it's private. It's about 30 minutes of a person's time, but it's worth it to take the time to go through it. And it's 13 questions that I distilled down after 45 years of studying that topic and many, many books. And if a person, because when you ask somebody what their values are, they'll tell you their social idealisms. They'll say peace and harmony and this and that. And And I I go, no, 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 no. I'm interested not in ideologues and ideologies. I'm interested in what is your life demonstrate spontaneously because your perception, decisions, and actions are actually being a manifestation of what the hierarchy of your values are. So I want to look at what your life is actually displaying and demonstrating, not what you fantasize about. Just like if you ask people if they want to be financially independent, everybody puts their hand up, but less than 1% actually obtain it. So I'm not interested in what people think and fantasize. I'm interested in what their life is demonstrating. So that's the first step. Once they have an idea of what their life is demonstrating, I then show them how to prioritize their life and to work incrementally, gradually towards a prioritization. Because if you fill your day with high-priority actions, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain. And it then gets more executive function, more objective, a a stronger space and time horizon, expanded space and time horizons, more self-governance, more confidence. It sets more real objectives. It's more patient and perseverant because of the space-time horizon expansion. And you're more able to govern your amygdalas, impulses, and instincts, which are all the distractions and low-priority things that devalue you. So first identify the values and then start to prioritize what are the highest priority actions that can help you fulfill what's deeply meaningful to you, which is an expression of your highest value. Your teleological purpose is an expression of your highest value. Your ontological identity revolves around what's highest on your value. And your epistemological area of expertise and pursuit is based on what your highest value is. So that's the starting point. When the, when the Delphic Oracle said, know thyself, be thyself, love thyself, it's true. But your identity revolves around your highest value. So starting there and being that by delegating everything else, you're going to love your life. So that's the starting point. That maximizes brain function, it maximizes potential, and it actually stabilizes all seven primary areas of life for people. It helps them in communication, helps them in business, helps them in economics, helps them in relationship, helps them social leadership, helps them in their physiology and autonomic regulation. It helps them being inspired. Because whatever's highest on your value is where you're spontaneously inspired and you don't need extrinsic motivation to get you to act. So that's where... That's mm-hmm. a crucial component is deciding there and starting there. And when people say that they mm. aren't functioning, I can guarantee that most of the reasons why are because they've subordinated to some outside authority they're comparing themselves to. And by the law of contrast, they're minimizing themselves to others. They're injecting those people's values in life. They're trying to be somebody they're not. 
and then they're running into the normal friction that is a, an essential feedback system to let them know they're not being authentic. They're authentic as their highest priority, not somebody else's. And then they bang their head against the wall trying to be somebody they're not, being second at being somebody else's instead of first being themselves. So I basically just help them discern that, prioritize that, structure it, and help them move in the direction where they can start incrementally build momentum and find something that's inspiring to them they can't wait to do that serves people. Otherwise, there's no income. If you're not doing something you love to do that's mm -hmm. making an income, you're trapped. You're doing. Then you have a Monday morning blue, Wednesday hump days. Thank God it's Fridays and week friggin' ends. If you actually go do something you really <laughs> love to do, you can't wait to get up in the morning and be able to do it. When you do, people can't wait to get the service. I can't wait to go out and, you know, share my research with people. And I've been blessed to have students now in every country around the world. It's because I can't wait to do it that people can't wait to get it. And I think that that applies to everybody I know that's done extraordinarily well. They found something that they love as their niche, and they went out and mastered it. And you'll master the thing that's most important, but you won't if it's low on your values. Anytime you do something low on your values, you deny so that, yourself. Mm -hmm. Your distinction of what values is is unique. Like most most of the values work that I've done, I'm a coach, and I, I think that there's a, there's a time and place where it's really helpful to understand what matter if it's like compassion or peace or you know whatever moral values there's a there's a time and place for it and the way that you break down values is is really interesting and there's a story that you told once about a mother who came to you she was in, in seek, seeking your your help and your services for her son who was sitting around on the couch all day watching tv shows watching crime scene investigation shows could you share that story and and how you tied that to his values yeah the mother was frustrated because she had a 23 year old son that was seemingly floundering in her perception see people have a different set of values and they project their values onto others and when those people don't live in their values they label very common thing you see that in psychology and schools education you see it everywhere and i said um she said to me she says can you help my son and get him off his butt and get him from quit being lazy. And he's not lazy in his values. He's just lazy in yours. <laughs> his, mm -hmm. his highest value is something different than what hers was. You know, I'm, I'm, I would be considered lazy to a person that's probably, even though I just went out and worked out this morning, I only do it once a week. But to people that work out three and four and five times a week, they go, well, he's lazy. He doesn't want to work out. You know, I don't want to focus on this thing. And when they tell me you ought to be out working out, I go, I, I need you to go to the library more. I just put it back on them for fun. <laughs> but, uh, and they get the point. I said, you're projecting your values onto me, and it's futile. I'm not here to live in your values. But anyway, this, this young boy, 23 years old, young man, was frustrating the mom because the mom was thinking, you know, he needs to be motivated to go out and get a job and make some money, and she doesn't want to rescue him, but she's doing it. She's actually rescuing the kid. And so I went in there and I chatted with him and he's in the you know, living room watching TV. And I said, your mom on your case? He goes, yeah. I said, she bitched quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, I said, uh, so what are you watching? She go, he goes, the CSI or whatever this crime show is. I said, um, you watch a lot of those kind of shows? He goes, yeah, I, I love those shows. I said, uh, so do you watch 
a lot of TV or do you watch those shows? Because I, I, I go from the, those shows to those shows to those shows at reruns. So is there a common thread to all the shows you like to watch? Yeah. I like to solve crime issues. He says, I like to go on there and as the information's going, see if I can figure out beforehand and see how often I'm right on solving it and think of what I would do in that situation because I've learned a lot about that topic. I said, does your mom know that that's really what you love doing and you're watching TV, not for just watching TV to escape, but you're watching because you want to learn something? And he goes, no, she doesn't get it. I said, well, I can maybe help her see it. Uh, so have you considered doing that as a career? He says, that's what I want to do. But I'm having to take all these classes in school. And I said, and you're not inspired by those classes because you can't see how that's going to help you become great in, in crime solving. Exactly. I said, if you were taking classes that you knew would be helpful to your crime thing, you'd excel, wouldn't you? He goes, I believe I would. So after we got through this hour session, she said, when I, when I brought him back out, so, well, did you talk some sense into my son and get him off the, off the couch? And I said, no, not really, but I got some questions for you. And she was kind of puzzled. And I said, <laughs> uh, we went online and we looked and there's different ways of being a criminal investigation specialist, but your son wants to do it. That's why he's watching all those shows. He wants to be a criminal investigator. He wants to solve crime mysteries. He said, well, that's all he watches. He said, constantly on the TV doing that. that. Yeah, that's probably what he watches the most of. I said, right now he can't see how his classes are doing it. So he just gets by and gets just enough to pass a grade to keep you off his case. And he's just buying time. But have you considered a letting him go after what he wants to do and go into the specialty? And there's a number of ways of doing it. You can do it through the police departments and work your way up, or you can go into special education, which is there, or you can take certain classes and then special education. And she said, are you interested in that? And he said, if I was taking classes that would help me in my career doing crime work, I would be absolutely inspired by that. That's what I've been trying to tell you all along. And I said, if I were you as a mom, I'd, I'd target him and let him be directed into what inspires him. That's his gift. That's where he's going to excel. So she was smart enough mm. to allow that to happen. And of course, for the second he's on to the classes, he's getting to do what he loves doing. He's alive and, and now he's focused. But he couldn't see how the classes he was taking was connected. Now, I could have linked those classes to whatever he loves learning because I'm really good at that. I can take any class a kid is taking and I can increase their grades and increase their engagement, increase their inspiration to go to that class in, in 45 minutes or less. And, and I've done that many, many times, many, many levels of education. But if there's a curriculum that's designed to do that, he will be even more engaged because he's working on his dream. And everybody wants to learn. They just want to learn what's important to them. You know, I, I, mm -hmm. I'm blessed because mine's the evolution of human consciousness. And I can study geology and study mineralogy and look at the, the minerals that are sitting in the cofactors of enzymes with, with the vitamins. And I can go and look at the enzyme metabolic pathways and I can see the minerals in each one of the cofactors. And I can go and, hey, that's where it came from. And how did that manifest in the, the interstellar space in the cosmic onic, uh, systems out there? You know, nucleosynthesis, the cosmic nucleosynthesis, stellar or Big Bang or or a supernova's nucleosynthesis. And I can trace those atoms back into the geology and from the geology into biological systems and then into metabolic pathways. And I can get inspired by that 
studying mineralogy, geology, and studying cosmology. And people go, well, how does that relate to personal development? It's major because your entire vitality depends on those cofactors and those minerals. They're trace minerals, but they, they, all your enzymes are based on it. Your iron and sulfur were one of the two biggest ones. You know, you're, they, these are major things that you rely on. And, and so I can study any different field and tie it right to what I'm up to and no, no problem learning it and absorbing it. But a lot of people don't see the connection. Mm. And so they struggle in classes until they can find out what they really love to do in their highest values and make links between those classes and that or find a curriculum that allows them to do it. So either go and do what you love or go and link what you're doing to what you love. And, and I mean, it's a major change. So this guy got focused on what he wanted to do. And his mom got off his case and realized he wasn't lazy in that. In fact, he was so dedicated, he'd never missed a time in that TV. He figured out how to organize his life to make sure he was always there learning what was important to him, just not his mom. His mom thought he needs to be doing a, a, a paper route or a work at McDonald's or something, you know, something classic from the 1970s or 60s or something. But the kid was <laughs> in a new world and he was online and he was learning everything he can, but she wasn't paying attention. She wasn't valuing that. Therefore, it wasn't the formal education she was expecting. But she was behind him once, he, yeah. once it was clear that he would do it because he showed evidence that he was sincere. It wasn't a joke. He was sincerely wanting to study that. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful breakdown and it's a, a simple yet profound reminder that we are all choosing to spend our time in a certain way. And if we just do an audit of how we are spending our time, we can pretty quickly get clued into what, what matters most to us, right? And yeah, there's, there's a lot in there about- I said what we spontaneously, what you do, spontaneously. And find the time for it. We make time, find time, and spend time on things that are really, really, really important to us. We find a way of getting it done. So time is one of the value determinants. Mm -hmm. There's 13 of them, and that's one of them. Could you share a, a few others? And a, a, of course, I'll point people to the resource on your website. Yeah, on the website, it's private and, and it's free. So the first one is space. And, and I have started observing, you know, when, when I started studying values back in 78, you know, there's, there was all kind of little techniques to find values and ideals. And, and it was just, it wasn't true. And it's just, it misleads people. It's trying to make everybody fit into a box about here's how you're supposed to be as a human being. And it just doesn't work. There's complementary opposite values and you need both. That's why you have pro-life and pro-abortion and pro-guns and anti-guns and pro-Palestinian, anti-Palestinian. There's a necessary pairs of opposites. So trying to get somebody into one side is futile. It's a, it's a fantasia idea that everybody's going to get along and live in kubaya. The reality is that everybody's got a unique set of values and there's no two with the exact same set. They're fingerprint specific. So the, the one determinant is your space. There's a thing called proxemics. And you have an intimate space, which is about a foot and a half around you, about your shoulder width. And then you've got your, your personal or in, in individual space, which is about four feet. And you've got your social space and your public space. And the closer you are to something, the, the closer you keep things to you, the more valuable they are. So in other words, a diamond ring, if you give a woman a really nice diamond ring, she, it ain't getting off her hand. Or if it is, it's just for a second, it's going back on there. But if you give them a piece of trash that they have zero value for, they'll never use, they don't want it, it'll go in the trash can, take it away from here. So it becomes proximal or distal 
if it's a highly valuable or low value. If it has no value, it's, it's completely out of your space. But if it has some moderate value, it's in there, but not close. But if it's extremely valuable, the most valuable, it's right there. That's why you want to be close to somebody that you love with intimacy, right? You, you, it's a close connection. So close connection means high in value. And when you don't have value on your mate, you want them away from you. Get away. Leave me alone. Bug off. Mm -hmm. So the space is a, is a very great indicator. And the time you take is an indicator of what you value. So space and time are the first two indicators. You know, I, 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 my space is my computer and I'm teaching on it all day long. And its primary objective is for teaching. My, my, and I'm in front of it, you know, I'm a foot and a half away from it most of the day. And then I'm researching online. So my computer is very valuable because I get to research, teach, and disseminate information and write all on my computer. So it's a very valuable tool. The third one is energy. When you're doing something high in your value, your energy goes up. When you're doing something low in your value, your energy drops. You're drained doing low priority things and you're absolutely in, in invigorated when you're doing high priority things. That's why the kid could always sit there and he wouldn't fall asleep watching CSI, but you put him in front of another topic and he may be falling asleep. So what is it that energizes you most? In my case, teaching. This is the fourth uh, podcast so far today, plus a, a, a webinar. And I got another webinar coming up tonight and another podcast when I get off here. So, you know, five or six of those a day, plus a live seminar all night. <laughs> But I have the energy for it. So when you're doing something that's really high in your value, energy goes up. And so you look at where is your energy at its peak? And where does it match what you fill your space and time? Because there'll be a pattern. And you're looking for a pattern that repeats on these answers. The fourth one is money. You make money, find money, and spend money on things that are valuable to you. But you don't want to waste your money on things that aren't mm -hmm. valuable. So if somebody comes up to you and if, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, uh, there's a seminar on how to maximize human awareness and potential, would you like to come and join us and speak on it? I'm there. I'll fly there. You know, I'll spend my money there. But most of my money goes to investments or goes back into the educational industry because that's where my highest values are. So if you look at where you spend your money, that tells you an indicator. Where you spend your money, where you end up with the higher energy, where you, what you fill your space with and what you spend your time on, they will all point to the same answers, if you're honest. So those are four indicators. The fifth one is, where do you have the greatest degree of order and organization? Because obviously, you want to disseminate information. So somehow, you've got an organized schedule. You've got organized knowledge. You've got organized ways of reaching people. You know, you have order and organization around it. But maybe your car, maybe that's low on your values, and you probably don't want to spend time. I may, I'm guessing now. I don't know if you're a car person, but but you may not have this focus on your car. You may not have focus on the lawn or something. You know, you you could let that. You don't care about that. Whatever you care much about and is really inspiring, you bring order to it. If not, somebody else has to do it because you won't do it. It's just not priority. So. Cooking is absolutely zero in mine. I, I have cooks and specialists to take care of all my cooking and shopping and all that stuff. I don't do that because I'm interested in teaching, researching, writing as many hours a day as possible. So I don't want to do low priority things that aren't inspiring to me. I don't live to eat. I eat to perform and pre to, to present. So I maximize my eating just for presentation. That's it. That's my focus. So where are you mm -hmm. most ordered and organized? The next one's where are you most disciplined, reliable, and focused? 
What are you absolutely reliable to do? You can count on me to be teaching. You can't count on me to be working out necessarily. I do it once a week, but you can count on me to be teaching multiple times a week. I do 300 plus seminars a year and plus 350, 400 podcasts a year. So if you add those up, I'm, I'm busy doing those things. So if you look carefully at what you're, you know, what you're disciplined on, it's obvious in my case, but I'm not disciplined on socializing or partying or cooking or, you know, mowing a yard, give me a break. I don't even have a yard. I live on a ship. So, <laughs> so I, I look at, you know, where is it discipline and reliability and order? The next one is what are you thinking about? And the next one is what are you visualizing? And the next one is what are you internally dialoguing with yourself about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true? If there's no evidence of it coming true, and if it's not something you would absolutely love to come true, you don't write it. So in my case, I want to travel the world and teach. That's been my dream since 17. I'm still, I'm 69 now. So I'm, you know, 51 plus years I've been doing this. So that's what I do. And I visualize it and I think about it and I talk to myself about it. And um, I've got it all written out and it's articulated and it's clear and it's focused and my life demonstrates it. It's how I fill my space. It's how I spend my time. <laughs> it's my energy. It's it's where my money goes. It's what my where I'm most organized in order, most disciplined. Life is pointing in that direction. There's evidence of it. If there's no evidence, it's BS. And people want to write down, well, I this is my fantasy, but there's no evidence. You can't put that down. It's got to have some evidence. You make things happen in the high values. The next one is what do you want to converse with other people about most? And what do you bring the conversations to? Mm. If I'm in a social setting, I'm going to mm. bring the conversation something to do with human behavior pretty quick. Anything that's empowering in mm. the seven areas of life, spiritually, mentally, career, financial, family, social, physical, I'm, I'm right there and I'll, we'll talk all night about it. But you talk about the newest thing on gossip from on, on uh, the socialites, unless I'm doing consulting for them, I'm not interested. Uh, unless it's relating to human behavior specifically. So the things that are how to repair a car. I, I haven't driven a car in 32 years. I have people that drive cars for me, take care of me there. So I don't do anything that's low on my values. I don't focus on it. So and I don't talk about it. I just get quiet. Anytime you see me quiet, you know, it's low on mm -hmm. my values. Anytime you see me talking, you know, it's high on my values. Mm. I'm extroverted in my highest and I'm introverted mm -hmm. in my lowest. We all are. If, you went, if, if I went to an IT conference, I'd probably not say a word for the entire three days. But if you went to a human behavior <laughs> conference, I'd probably not shut up. The next one is what is it that inspires you and brings tears to your eyes? I'm sure you've done podcasts where you got inspired and you got a tear in your eye and it was meaningful. Um, I, I would be willing to bet because it's something you love doing and get disseminating information that makes a difference in people's lives. So what inspires you? What's common to the mm. people who inspire you? And all the great thinkers and philosophers and Nobel mm. Prize winners and all the great individuals that have done extraordinary things, these are my people I've been standing on the shoulders of. And so that inspires me to learn about their lives and how they did what they did and, and take information and synthesize it and disseminate it. And the, and the next one is what are the three most consistent, persistent goals that you have that are coming true? that are manifested. In my case, mm. I want to go to every country on the face of the earth on just a few more countries to go. I got three or four coming up this year in 2024. 
So that'll be, I'm going to get over 200 here, but in the next two years, I'll hit 200. So I, I, there's evidence that I want to travel the world. That's pretty good evidence. Not everybody's done that. Okay. I keep a record of what is unique about my life, and it's in the area of my highest value. And then I also wanted to teach, and I wanted to reach, you know, billions of people across the planet. And that's got evidence. So if you look at what you have as a goal that has evidence of doing it, um, that's what counts. And I also wanted to write voluminously and want to be referenced in a thousand books. And that's all happening. So whatever it is that you've had a goal that's actually coming to fruition that has evidence, that's important to you. You make it happen. And the last one is, what do you want to study, read about, learn about, and watch on YouTube's about most? And if you answer those questions, 13 mm. questions, and you get three answers each, and then look at which one of those answers shows that most frequent, second most frequent, third most frequent, it gives you a great indication of what's really important to you, not what you fantasize, but what's really your life is demonstrating it's important. And that's a great starting point to start structuring your life around it so you can be inspired by your life. Mm. Well, thank you, Dr. John, for walking us through all that. That is that is powerful, potent stuff. If we take the time to answer those questions, we are going to have profound insights about our life. And yes. along the way in there, you mentioned that you're you're studying the evolution of human consciousness. And something, you know, some one way that I spend a lot of my time, Dr. John, if I did an inventory of my time, I think a lot about where we are going as a species and as a planet. And so as someone who is studying the evolution of human consciousness and as someone who is, who really beautifully articulates that polarities exist for a good reason, right? There isn't a right and wrong or a good and bad. There just is. It's, it's, it's all. Where, where do you see us going as a student of, of consciousness? Where do you see us going as a species? I'm going to make a statement here that you will probably chuckle on. I was in Toronto speaking to a group of 400 doctors. And after I did my presentation, they had a 30-minute Q&A. <clears throat> and this one doctor put his hand up and said, Dr. Martini, where do you see the profession going, the health profession going? And I made the statement. I said, if you were a leader, you would be telling me. If you're a follower, you'd be asking me, are you a leader or a follower? Because if you're a leader, you would tend to take it where you would dream, dream of taking it. Where do you want to take it? Mm. Somebody's mm. making a decision where they're mm. taking it. Whoever has the most power and whoever has the most influence is going to decide where it goes. So where do I see it going? I, go, I see it going in the direction of whoever takes command and has the most influence on the planet. That's where it's going. If somebody has a high value on, you know, um, global warming, it'll go in that direction. If it has a high value on going to space and not even caring about the planet, it'll go in that direction. If it has an idea that we're we're here to have a, a, a galactic presence in, in level five humanity, then it's going to go in that direction. If we're fundamentalists, wanting everybody to go back to 2,000 years ago and live in the ecologically sound basics and go back to the basics, it'll go in that direction. Whoever the leader is, but usually, technological advancement allows the leadership. The study of technology was comes from the word techie, techni, which means uh, as a means to an end. And teleology was the end in mind. So technology was added to teleology to be able to build the strategies and the tools to get 
where we want to go. So usually the technologically most advanced thinkers are the ones that are determining the future. So you have people like Chrisman or Kurzweil or whatever, they're going out there with futuristic ideas. If you go and watch some of the videos of these guys 35 years ago, they nailed it today. So they were on track with where it's going because they could see the patterns and who were the leaders and where it was going. That could change if leadership changes, but technology is going to lead the way. There's no doubt that technology is going to be advancing, keeping advancing. Mm. We're going to work well, what's the What's the world now. that you most we're going, to, we're going to mine asteroids. We're going to colonize. We're going to go globally. We're going to go solar-wise. We're going to go beyond solar in the next few hundred years. And I don't think anything's going to stop that. Mm. What's the world that you want to inhabit that you most deeply desire to live in? Well, I, I'm pretty grateful for the world I'm in right now. I mean, I, I don't really have a lot of complaints. I'm not worried about what's going on. I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm looking at both sides simultaneously and see that there's just pairs of opposites uh, entangled with each other going on, making up love. So I see love in an infinite variety of forms in different pairs of opposites going on in an entangled way, uh, non-locally. And so I'm, I'm going, this is a pretty amazing experience called Earth. But most people see one side or unconscious the other side and don't have a big enough view to see the other side. And then they're all emotionally disturbed by whatever they think is disturbing out there. So I don't really, I don't live in that world. So I don't, I see the world pretty, pretty magnificent personally. Mm-hmm. Amazing place. Even the conflicts mm-hmm. right now, because uh, I'm watching both peace and war escalate. If you study the law of es- uh, heuristic escalation, you know that whenever an ideologue comes along with an idea and an ideology, an equal and opposite ideology comes along from another ideologue in order to counterbalance it. The two together make up love, and they both escalate to extremes to teach people to learn through the dialectic the other side. But some people want to hold on to being right with their dot their debate instead of a dialogue, and so they don't grow and synthesize and integrate pairs of opposites. They keep dividing them. And then they get humbled and they get broken down and a lot of them die and a lot of them spend their money and they learn a lesson until they get humbled and eventually learn how to bring that together again. So I'm seeing life as Will Durant in his History of Civilization. It's a great set of 13 books on the history of civilization. He nailed it when he talked about the dialectic. Zeno was supposedly attributed to it, but it goes before that. It's even earlier than that. So I try to create a system that has a simultaneous synchronicity of opposites in my awareness, and I ask questions. Whenever I see something that that I'm attracted to or repelled, I go and ask intuitive questions to balance it out so I'm present. When I'm present, I see a hidden order in the chaos that other people are wanting to fix Mm -hmm. all the time. And whatever you want to fix, if somebody wants to fix it the opposite direction. (laughs) So I don't waste my time trying to uh, fix something that doesn't need fixing. I see a hidden order in things. Are there are there challenges that you face? Well, let me let me back up. You the, your description women. of love women. is very women. moving to me. Women. Well, <laughs> number one challenge: women. <laughs> that's the that's the great mystery. Well, Doctor John, I how do, how do, that's a that's, that's a mystery. That's a that's a profound answer, but. And, and a very funny one. I, I, I've heard you speak about love. And one way that I internalize your description of love is when we can embrace all of who we are, right? And not outcast or reject certain parts of ourselves. 
And so yeah. I'm wondering if you could describe love in your words and if there are parts of yourself or parts of the world, like a, a lot of my work is if there's something I see in someone else that I rejected myself, I might either in, this is the way you describe it, I would guess that I'm an, either infatuated by them. And so I haven't claimed my power there, or I reject that. And so I haven't really owned my shadow. And so I'm wondering if you could just explain in, in a little bit more depth what I'm pointing to here. And if there's any specific parts of yourself that you're working on, on build, having a more loving relationship towards. Well, 39 years ago, uh, almost 40 now, I was noticing that when I was judging people and judging, watching other people judge other people, that I was noticing that whatever they were judging, I could easily see them doing the same thing, but they couldn't see it in that moment. And I was doing the same thing. I was judging people, and I was not able to see in that moment where I was doing the same thing. So I got fascinated by that because I thought if that individual could see that what they were seeing in other people that they were judging was in themselves, they'd calm down their judgment. And judgment leaves people empty. And when you have self-reflective and have more appreciation for somebody, it's more fulfilling. So instead of you waiting for people to push my button for me to discover what I haven't found in myself, I just figured, let's just go to the Oxford English Dictionary, the largest dictionary, and let's go underline every possible human behavioral trait that could be identified in somebody. And so I did. And I found 4,628 traits listed. And then I out to the, to the side, I went, who do I know that expresses that trait to the fullest degree? And I wrote their name out there. And then I looked inside myself one by one. I'm neurotic. This took a couple of years. I went and asked myself, now, where and when do <laughs> I display or demonstrate that behavior? And I found out that I had all 4,628 traits. I was nice and mean and kind and cruel and considered and considered and honest and dishonest and forthright and withdrawing and, you know, betrayed and was loyal. And I, I, I did everything that I found on those lists. I mean, want to kill people and want to save people's lives. I had about all of them. And uh, mm. when I looked and I realized that every one of them and I had them to the same degree as the most extreme people I imagined displaying that trait, that was a major breakthrough for me because I realized that whatever somebody says about me, it's true in some context, maybe not the context they're projecting, but in some context. And um, that was that was very liberating because then I realized that my job is to have reflective awareness, which is what leads to true love and intimacy. Love is, and people confuse love with you know sexual intimacy or something, but real intimacy is when you realize that what you see in others you have inside you and you own it and you don't need to get rid of it. You're not ashamed of it, so you're resenting them or not proud of it, so you're admiring them. You're just present with it and acknowledging that there's exactly the same amount of benefits as drawbacks in each of those traits. There are no positive or negative traits, but moral hypocrisies have made people believe that, and that's where the trap becomes. And religions and politics love to promote moral hypocrisies to disempower people, so they have control over people that are disempowered by things they infatuate and resent, and they're not willing to reflectively own. So I just teach people how to own those, and I do that on myself. And so there's nothing that I need to get rid of in myself. I learned that I need every one of those traits. Mm. Uh, there's times for everything under the sun. Mm. And, you know, that was taught to me when I was 11 by a musical group called The Birds. They had a, a song called Turn, 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 
time for this, a time for that, a mm-hmm. time for this, a time for that, which came from Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And I thought, well, that's great. But I, it took me a while to learn that, even though I got exposed to it at 11 and brought tears to my eyes to listen to the song, because that was a sign that it was on track with what my destiny was, what I feel was my calling in life, which is learning and teaching. So I just don't waste my time, uh, you know, if I judge something, it's it's because I've disowned a trait. Once I own it, I chuckle and I go, there I am again. And who am I to judge them? I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> in, in Romans 2.1 in the New Testament, it showed very clearly, uh, you know, beware of judging because what you judge, you do the same things. And it's been stated before the time of Romans writings in the first century. So this goes way back. This is thousands of years old. It's nothing new. But we have to be reminded. Every new generation has to be reminded of the basic principles that are still the test of time. Is there uh, is there one of the four thousand six hundred twenty eight that's the thorniest that you catch yourself in in judgment the most of these days? No, I see most of them in myself. I don't. I don't have a. You know, I mean, I've deceived myself. I had somebody said you're deceptive to me, and I said, yeah, I deceive myself in how much time I want to spend with you. <laughs> I, I'm spending way more time than I do. <laughs> and and, and uh, somebody said, well, you're an a-hole. And they, they, they were upset with me, and they said, you're an a-hole, right? And I said, thank God, because otherwise I'd be full of crap, you know? And so I just have some fun with it. No matter what anybody says about me, I just use it to my advantage. <laughs> Which is a confusing thing, because I don't know what to do with that. When was the last time that you removed the tears? This was something, this is one of your values uh, had, questions, prompts, and I, I think, I, please share. Well, I got to share a story on a podcast that was pretty uh, inspiring about a guy that basically got hijacked on the freeway in South Africa, and uh, I got to work with him and help him break through the so-called post-traumatic stress disorder because they ransomed a large sum of multi-millions of dollars from him and who threatened to kill his family. And we turned that into amazing opportunity where he actually went and thanked the people. So that was a tearjerker. Mm. Um, I also shared a story at an, on another podcast of a, somebody that was beaten by their, the father. And before he died in prison, she got to see him and thank him and appreciate and love him and tell him how what he did served her and why she's an empowered woman honored by the Queen of England today. You know, I, mm. I mean, there's stories. I, I've, I've been blessed to get around, around stories that, you know, clients that I've gotten to work with and transformations that are absolutely tear-jerking. A, a man that was upset with his father for 42 years, never talked to his father, came to the breakthrough experience, and I had him go through and stop the fantasy I had about his father and appreciate what his father did for him because he's a very powerful entrepreneur because of his father used to – it, well, had a major fist fight with him, kicked him out of the house when he was 16 and said, never come home. So he went out and became extremely proficient as an entrepreneur at a young age and built this massive business and wealth and everything else. But he never saw that his father had helped and needed see that. And he had this fantasy his father should have been nice to him, but he had a brother that his father was nice to. And the, fa- the brother still living at home, never got a job waiting for his father to die to, to get a farm. I said, is that what you were hoping you would get, wow. what your brother got? He goes, I was until you just pointed that out. And he broke out in tears. And so this story is a tear-jerking story. So I get tears every single day, tears of gratitude. 
Mm. I've got goosebumps from those stories. So thank you. I get to watch transformations. So I get tears of gratitude, David. I probably had 15 yeah, thank or you. maybe more Saturday night at the Breakthrough Experience in L.A. this week. At least 15. Just tears of speechless, tears of gratitude. Watching lives change. Mm. 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 That's beautiful, Dr. John. I had an 89-year-old woman at the Breakthrough Experience in L.A. this week. Absolute gem. Just a first-class, cool 89-year-old woman still wanting to learn. And I had a, another man who had a problem with his mom who was about 89. And so he, he was probably 50 and he, something. And he picked her to be his mother as a surrogate to tell her how much he loved her. And I'm telling you, there wasn't a dry eye in that room because what she said to him was his mother. And what he said to her was her son. And, and there was just snot. I mean, tears to such a degree that you're just taking Kleenex and wiping snot off your nose because you're just, mm. when people mm. are authentic and they are grateful and they have love and they're inspired and they're enthused and they're certain and they're present and they're transcendental awareness, there's grace there. It's impossible not to have tears of gratitude. It's just, it just comes out of everybody, whole room. And to me, that's what I get to do. I'm, I'm mm. paid to help people transform their life and see things from that perspective. So there's a there's a little bit of a delay. I'm, I'm seeing that there's a little bit of a lag and a delay in our communication. So I appreciate you bearing with me. And you're you're the type of guest anyway, Dr. John, that it's it doesn't take a lot of uh, navigation on my end for the, the insights and wisdom and and moving stories and power, powerful moving stories to be dropped. So I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation. I just have a, a few more things that I would love to talk about with you and. I watched recently uh, a video that you gave about how you can basically eradicate depression. And it was, this was a, a really unique perspective. Could you talk about how you can really just totally eradicate depression? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the 1991 misrepresentation of pharmaceutical knowledge about biochemical imbalances and i've been debunking that since 1991 anyway and i just think it's not fair to get 70 percent of the females in in our society on a medication uh site meds particularly when they have side effects and things but i find that when people have depression and i've, I've had people that are on site meds and i've had people of all different labels and clinically depressed and labels and diagnosis and i've had them in my programs every week I make them every week. And I confront them. I said, you've got 15 delusions that you, most people run their life by that lead to depression. An unrealistic expectation on other people to be one-sided. That's one. You expect people to be nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, positive, never negative, peaceful, never wrathful, generous, never stingy, one-sided. And they're not going to be. No human being is one-sided. So if you have a delusion, they're going to be 51% or even 70% more on this side or 100% this way, or there should always be that way. The greater the polarity, the more polarized and more depressed you're going to be. Because depression is a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy about how life's supposed to be. And people don't want to believe that, but I, I confront people who say, no, I've got a biochemical balance. And I said, really? Okay, I'm going to dissolve your depression here, and then you're going to go tell your psychiatrist to go stick it up their butt. Because they're basically putting you on meds that you don't need. And I see this, and they and boy, they get upset. 
they become dependent. And the psych people, I've had rounds with psych people sometimes, and I say, because I've got a guy now, he hasn't been taking your medication, he hasn't had depression for four years now, what the hell's, where's the, where's the deficiency of drugs in this kid? You know? It's just that's the, they're farm representatives, farmer representatives, they don't know any different. They're, they're neuropsychiatrists that they're specializing in biochemistry and neurotransmitters. I've studied neurotransmitters, I've studied all the neurotransmitters and how they're regulated and the feedback system, the uptake systems, I've studied all those things. They're not looking at what's creating that, and that's something I am. So I basically go in there and show that they have unrealistic expectation. If you have an expectation that's not met, well, how do you feel? When, you, when you, somebody's late for a meeting with you yes, or late on your show, it doesn't feel great. You, you feel kind of angst and Oh, how depressed. I feel, yeah. yeah. I get pissed, yeah. I get you angry. You get pissed and angry? Well, anger and aggression, right? Ang- ag- ag- anger and aggression, blame and betrayal, you blame the person for being late. They betrayed your time. You criticize mm-hmm. them. You challenge them. You mm-hmm. feel despaired. You're depressed. You want to exit and escape. You don't want to deal with them. You're frustrated. You, it feels futile dealing with them. You're grouchy. You're grieving. You hate them. You hurt. Want to hurt them? You're, you're, you know, you're, they're, you're irritable. And there's irrationality. And there's now jadedness and the feeling like they're a jerk. These are normal responses when you have an expectation. But if all of a sudden you found out your guest was on the way to being there, but a child just got run over and he went and tried to take him to the hospital and he's delayed and he's 10 minutes delayed and he said, I've just saved a boy's life, pardon the blood that's all over me, but I, I got him to the hospital before he died. You'll change your attitude because your expectation changed. Just like that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the chemistry's changed. If a tiger jumps in a room and... Uh, it is about to eat you. If I do your blood chemistry, it's going to be screwed. I mean, it's going to be cortisol will be off the rev, adrenaline will be off the thing, osteocalcin will be up, but dopamine is going to be down, serotonin is going to be down, and cephalin is going to be down in 200 milliseconds from one perception of a tiger. But if that tiger turns around, it becomes Tony Tiger, and it wants to hug you, and you've always wanted to meet Tony Tiger all your life, and you ate frosted flakes, all the chemistries go the other way in 200 milliseconds. And we store in our subconscious mind these expectations and associations that we don't ever balance. And so we end up with these so-called biochemical imbalances. It's not the cause. They're correlates, but not causes. Because otherwise, we find out the cause to a chemistry to sell a pharmaceutical drug. But I found that when you have unrealistic expectation on people to be one-sided, an unrealistic expectation for those people to live in your values, not their own. And I watch that daily. I watch people... Self-righteous, you should do this. You ought to be doing this. You need to do this. And they're righteously projecting onto other people what they think they should be doing. And then angry and aggravating their diabetes, because that's where diabetes is initiated, from bitterness and anger to other people not living in your values because you're self-righteous projecting that. And so what happens is you have an unrealistic expectation for them to live in your values. They're not going to. They're going to live in their values. If you don't honor them and know what their values are to set realistic expectations and you expect them from your amygdala to be pleasure without pain, you have a delusion. But I have not seen a depressed person without delusions, not one. So I confront the delusions, crack the delusions, I know how to dissolve them, and all of a sudden the depression's lifted. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. Mm. And the next one is an unrealistic expectation on yourself to be one-sided. The positive thinking mentality. If I'm not positive, there's something wrong with me. If I'm not happy, there's something wrong with me. No, there isn't. 
you're going to have you're going to fluctuate with all kinds of emotions throughout the day and your self-esteem is going to fluctuate around a set point called your self-worth and it's going to it's not going to be just one-sided and if you have an unrealistic expectation if it is you're going to beat yourself up think there's something wrong with you and then if somebody's going to sell you some solution an opium to try to get you to think you're going to get that one-sided no you're not there's no 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 one's going to offer you something that's one-sided in life and then if you expect yourself to live outside your values and not inside your values another delusion and then the combination of those two and then if you expect the whole world to be peaceful nice never mean kind never cruel positive never negative that's a delusion we're seeing it right now they're both escalating nice peace and war are both escalating as has always been on the planet through, through history. So setting realistic expectations has a lot to do with why we're depressed. If we don't set realistic expectations on things that are real, we're going to get the symptoms of depression. And depression's not an illness. Depression's a feedback mechanism to guide you to set realistic expectations in real time, dealing with people with respect on their values or your own values. That's a big part of it. That's, there's other ones, but those are most common ones right there. Mm-hmm. So just a, a few more questions for you, Dr. John, and, and these are more rapid fire in nature. These are the ones I ask at the back end of every interview. You can take as long as you would like to answer them, though. And the first one is what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Well, my ordinary moments is getting to teach and getting to consult and getting to write. And I like to think of it as a cosmic, it's a big cosmic puzzle. And every time I get to find another piece of the cosmic puzzle that brings a tear to my eye, I can't wait to share it with people. When I get to share that and get to see their eyes light up with that new insight, that's that's my tear of gratitude, ordinary gratitude day. And I get to do that every day. So that's that's pretty pretty common. That's that's a normal daily mm. interaction. I, I learned a long time ago, don't don't waste your time on anything low in priority delegate everything else, get other people to do low priority things and get on and fill your day with high priority actions. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions, it's going to fill up with low priority distractions. If it does, you're not going to be an inspired individual and your energy is going to show it. Mm-hmm. And your overall empowerment of the seven areas of your life is going to show it. So why waste your time on anything other than what's truly most meaningful, most priority, most fulfilling and most serving? Hmm. Where do you feel most unfinished? Well, there's, it's infinite. I call it infinite. It's infinite finished. Because you, no matter what you know, you always know that there's, you, you know, what you don't know is always growing faster than what you know, and it gives me something to be exploring. So I get to explore the unknown on a daily basis, and I'm researching it every single day to try to learn something. There's plenty of material coming in every day to keep me thirsty and learning. So that's my favorite thing is to, all the stuff I don't know. You know, Socrates was considered the wise man because he said, I don't know, I know nothing, which really meant that mm-hmm. the amount of what I know is insignificant and infinitesimal compared to what I don't know, which is an infinite. So as a result of that, he was the humblest yet wisest. And I, I can understand that. I can relate to that because the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And that keeps you thirsty for learning. Mm-hmm. Live with holy curiosity, Einstein said. Do you have a, a favorite quote that you come back to a lot? Well, the one statement that I was given by Paul Bragg when I was 17 years old, the night I met Paul Bragg, I told him that I didn't know how to read and I had learning problems and speaking problems. 
And he just looked at me and he said, is that all you got? Is that the only problem you got? And I said, well, yes, sir. That's, that's my main problem. He said, that's not a problem. And I said, well, okay. And he says, just, I want you to do this one thing and promise me you'll do this the rest of your life and never miss a day. I said, what's that? He says, just say to yourself that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. So I started saying that November, you know, November in 1972, and I've never missed a day. And I now define a genius as one who listens to their inner voice and follows the inner vision of their soul and obeys. In other words, they go after their calling. And that's what I do every day. So that's my genius. Everybody's got a genius inside. Mine just happens to be the willingness mm-hmm. to go and follow what my vision and my message is and just keep following the vision and sharing the message. I'll make sure to link to your website, your books, all the places that people can connect with you and your work. And uh, the final question that I ask in every interview, in a lot of ways you've already addressed, I I, I anticipate that I have a feeling of, of where, where you might go with this one. But the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know, in the words of Dr. John Demartini, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Well... There's two types of meanings, the way I describe it. One is the superficial, subjectively biased, morally hypocrisized projection of what things mean based on society's ideas and ideologies. This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is terrible, this is terrific, this is safe, this is not, this can, can cause life, this can cause death. Those are kind of the superficial. And then there's Aristotle's definition of meaning, the golden mean between the excess and deficiency of perception. And that's when our intuition, if we're infatuated, the intuition shows us the downsides to get us there, to extract meaning out of that elusive meaning. And if you're resentful, it tells you the upsides to extract the real meaning out of the thing that you thought was meaning. And that real meaning is the synthesis and synchronicity of all compromise opposites simultaneously aware with full consciousness. And that meaning is the meaning that I feel fulfilled and the meaning of life is that I feel fulfilled and I'm grateful for my life. I love what I'm doing. I'm inspired by this experience of life. I'm enthusiastically working on what I feel is my contribution. I'm present when I do it and I'm certain about my, my commitment. To me, that's uh, the most fulfilling life, and that's one with meaning. Thank you for joining me, Dr. John. This was uh, a very fun conversation, and l- like I said, you make the interviewer's job uh, very easy. So lots of uh, lots of wisdom bombs and quick downloads for for all the listeners and for myself in this episode. And yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing your genius to my show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Anytime. So for everyone who's listening, wishing you a a beautiful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and sending lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose.